This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilarin Nakel. And today's episode is one of my favorites so far. It's one of those conversations that I've, I've kept thinking about a lot. My guest is Dr. Jacqueline Mattis. She's a psychologist at Tufts University and someone who studied spirituality and altruism in, in especially poor black communities in the United States. But while this might make her work look culturally quite particular, it speaks to a much wider question, which is when the going gets rough, what happens to the better angels of our nature? We begin by discussing this issue. We reflect both on Mattis' work, but also on her personal experience growing up in Jamaica. And we also go on to discuss questions varying from the dilemmas of better policing in black communities to the relationship between poverty and crime. And we finish with a wonderful discussion on the idea of grace. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I bring to you Jacqueline Mattis. Dr. Jacqueline Mattis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I thought of starting with a memory I have. Um, we were talking about pro-sociality and altruism with a student who, invoking Maslow's hierarchy, said that, you know, it's all well and good for us, you know, semi-rich people to, you know, want to help others and whatnot. But if you come from a place where it's not, you don't necessarily have safety and food and whatever, well, you're not really going to think about anyone else. And uh, I was a little bit thrown back. I, I didn't really know what to say. I was talking a little bit about, you know, Maslow never actually draw a pyramid. It's not like you have to have one to have the other or to search for the others and mention something about Viktor Frankl in the concentration camp deciding to stay when he had the possibility of leaving because he had patients to treat as a doctor. Uh, but I kind of, you know, wanted to just move on because I didn't really know. I didn't feel like I was the right person to answer the question. So uh, what would you have answered? The notion that class is tied to altruism doesn't match with the lived experience of human beings. If that was the case, then you would see greater altruism among the wealthiest of people, and that's absolutely not true. And you would see no altruism among those who are deeply under-resourced, absolutely not true. So the, the, the reality is that when you look in places where people are desperately without the resources that they need, you see some of the most extraordinary acts of altruism. So altruism is a decision made by people based on a combination of cultural norms and values, religious norms and values, religion being a part of culture, but also personality, right? And, and, and by circumstance. So class has, has a lot to do with the processes by which people can enact their altruism, but is not tied to the likelihood that people will be altruistic. And you have really great research on this, but before going into the research, would you like to talk a little bit about your, your personal background? Because I've heard in an interview talking about your own experience in childhood, and it was, I think it was very, not only important, but also very inspiring. So I was born and raised in Jamaica. I grew up in a family that my mom and my one of my brothers used to talk about as upper growth. You know, not a ton of resources by any stretch of the imagination, although we were able to to live these weird pockets of privilege. Like I went to private school, even though my mom couldn't really afford it. So she made sacrifices mm. to allow us to do that. But beyond that, you know, there, there was just not a lot. Um, but my mom grew up in a family that was very under-resourced. And one of the things that I really love about our extended family, and particularly my grandmother and my great-grandmother, is the fact that even though they had virtually nothing, the lengths to which they went to care for others, people in their family certainly, 
but strangers, people in their community was extraordinary. And not, and it was just the way that they lived. So my grandmother would make food. She would eat last. If there was food, she would have a meal. If there wasn't, then she would feed her kids, feed others around her, feed these children who came into her household who were not her biological children, but who she chose to care for. And, you know, so she would skip meals, make sure that others were fed, right? So that's just the family I grew up in. There's a, a story that my mom tells about one of my uncles had an interview for high school and my grandfather was the only one who good shoes, hmm. right? Because they could only afford one pair of good shoes. So one of my older uncles had to go get my grandfather's shoes from his job. So my grandpa had no shoes at work and he brought the shoes back so that his younger brother could go to a, an interview for, for his high school. Growing up in a kind of context where people simply make do, but they make do with the mindset that you don't let others suffer. If you have a, a piece of bread, break it in two. Give it to somebody else who you know needs. So that, that's the context that I grew up in. And so growing up with this mindset of you, you love because we get to love. And that's an incredible privilege. Hmm, hmm. You told some really, I think, quite heartbreaking stories of, of very, at least, <laughs> difficult relations with the social services where often people would have to do great sacrifices in order to not lose their children and sometimes yes. do sacrifices that would lead them into losing their children if they are caught. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I saw that quite a bit in the, certainly in, in my own lived experience. And my, my mom was a social worker. When we came to the United States after many years, my mom was able to put us through school and then hmm. she went to college. So when I was a graduate student, my mom went to college and finished college with honors and then went on to Columbia University to get hmm. her master's degree. So my mom got her master's degree at the same time I got my doctorate. <laughs> That's not year, which was the greatest thing in the world. But, you know, watching my mom interface with the families that she worked with, you know, she was always very, very aware of how precarious their circumstances were. And the fact that, you know, yes, sometimes if, if you, if you went shopping for food and you were getting social service aid. And you shared that money with other people and, and the wrong person found out you, you could lose, you could lose everything, right? Because it's a mis misappropriation of the resources that you were given, right? Mm -hmm. um, and people would still do it. And people would still do it. They would still do it. People took in children, even though they were getting social service aid and they, they were getting aid, just enough aid for them and their kids, barely enough. If a neighbor was in danger of losing their kid because of whatever, substance abuse, mental illness, whatever it might be, people took in kids all the time, right? And took care of them and just kept taking care of them. Mm. Yeah, if someone came and knew that there were two extra kids in the household, how would you explain that? And yet you would be in danger of losing your children. Certainly the, the kids who you took in were in danger of being taken away because they were parentless in quotes. Mm. But people did it all the time. And it's that kind of deep, unbelievable love that, you know, when you see it, you recognize the sacrifices that people are willing to make just to preserve the best of what it means to be human. Yeah, yeah. In all fairness to, to, to the aforementioned student, it's not just an individual person who would think that poorer areas that in the U.S. are associated more with the inner city in Europe, more, more with the inverse of that with the, with the further further circles outside of the city 
But anyway, that the, the idea that that these are areas where altruism does not flourish is not just uh, just a few individuals who might hold this. You, you write that quote contemporary social science paints a bleak picture of inner city relational life. Indeed, the relationships of low-income urban residing Americans are represented as rife with distress, violence, and family disruption. Unquote. And uh, and and more specifically, there's been this theory that the uh, so-called middle class flight from the from the city centers to the suburbia has led into a lack of role models for inner city kids that they they only have anti-social role models because all the <laughs> pro-social role models have fled so would you talk would you like to talk a little bit about that and, and what what kind of research you've done at one of the housing projects in New York City absolutely so you know the the, the sort of everydayness of of goodness in a context where you see people having very few resources so the, the housing community, is one of, of thousands of housing communities across the United States where low-income people are living in um, subsidized, deeply subsidized housing. And most of the families are um, receiving aid, government aid of one kind or another. And just to be clear for listeners, this is very, very low income from, it's, I think it was 13,000 median income per household. Which for a family four. For a family, for four. Yeah. Yes, yes. In one of the in 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 an area where the it is, the cost of living is extremely high, it's difficult to make their numbers add up. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it even families who are getting aid, there is no way that a family getting aid can make it till the end of the month. With they they, they can't buy enough food for themselves and their kids. Right. The idea of being able to afford the clothes that your kids need, childcare is like paying for childcare is almost you know, that is astronomical in, in cities like New York and cities like D.C. So when you think about $13,000, and that's pre-tax, right? Um, the, it, it's, people are living desperately. So families are having to make decisions about who gets to eat today, right? And we would hear things like that, like, you know, kids would say, it's not my turn to eat, right? So, so fam- parents would have to make decisions about does... Do the kid, do the younger kids eat in the day and then the, the, the older kids get to eat dinner, right? Or, you know, how, how do we make it? So families are having to make these kinds of decisions. Nonetheless, families in these, these spaces, when they had even a little bit, would, would notice the needs of others and would do things, again, to preserve the dignity of the people around them. So we would see all the time um, women who would say, you know, and I, I talk about this in one of the papers, Miss So-and-so, why don't you and your kids come over for dinner tonight? Because they had rice or they had rice and beans and they, it was enough to be able to share. And they weren't thinking about today's the ninth of the month. I'm not thinking about the 25th of the month when things are going to get really hard. Right now, I know this family doesn't have anything and I can't watch them live like that. So they come over and everybody has a little bit of something and the parents often just wouldn't eat. The kids would, Right. So those kinds of decisions all were made all the time to, to share with others. The decision to, even beyond sharing food and other kinds of resources, the, the decision to take care of the well-being of others, men would talk about the ways in which they would protect the physical welfare of kids, of teenagers, by sometimes ha- you know calling the police when people were being beat up, sometimes by police officers, right? Um, and in certain circumstances, having to lie to get the police to come by saying, you know, somebody's shooting, because that's the only context in which sometimes the police would show up. And it wasn't true. 
But once people, once the police showed up, sometimes they would at least pull their, their, their comrades off of, you know, a, a kid being beat up, or at least they would see that a kid needed to be hospitalized because they had been attacked. So there are lots of ways in which people care for and give to each other, depending on the context. But it happens thousands of times a day, every day in these communities, in small and large ways. I think what was really nice about your paper was just how how many different kinds of motivations for these pro-social acts people themselves gave. I mean, you had a whole list. So one was like needs-based giving. So whether it's individual sympathy. So one of the quotes was, she didn't have anyone to turn to. She really needed someone to be there for her. So that would be an example of, of this kind of individual, maybe compassion, empathy, sympathy-related one. And sometimes needs of the community. For example, someone said, quote, nobody does anything for the kids around here. Someone has to step up, unquote. And that that's not enough to say that this is the reason for the pro-sociality. There was all sorts of norms that were motivating people. There were religious norms, spiritual norms, also all sorts of social relational norms, as you call them. So I quote, I watched my grandmother do these things and it made me want to live that way. <laughs> Um, quote, this woman I didn't even know, she took the time to do this good thing. And I learned from that. I learned what we should be like with each other, unquote. And the list goes on and on. And what I loved about this, because it's not like, the, it, it, people just love these master grand theories of, you know, this is why people give, or, you know, this is why people don't. Give. And there were just so many things from, from reciprocity, you know, they helped me, I'm going to help them, to just pure love, you know, I just love my, I just love this person, I just want to do it. To very abstract what you call humanistic orientation of just wanting to improve humanity. And, and uh, yeah, I, I really love the just a, a level of detail that there was and the fact that the people were speaking with their own voice. It, you know, it, it, was, it was real <laughs> claims made by real people in, in all the richness, but, but organized in a way that, that made sense. Yeah. No, it, it's one of the reasons why I love doing um, qualitative research. I, I, I do both qualitative and, and survey research. But one of the reasons I love doing qualitative research, I love doing interviews in communities, and I love being in communities where I'm doing the work. I don't just sort of dart in and, and dart out. Is It's a game changer in terms of social science when you get to not only listen to what to the richness of what people have to offer about why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing it and what they've seen others do, but when you get to see things that people aren't aware that they're doing. Uh, so I'll give you a, a quick example. One of the people I interviewed was um, a police officer who was just beautiful. And um, he and his wife took in 26 children over the, by the time I, I was interviewing him. Over the course of his adult life, he, had taken in, he and his wife had taken in 26 kids who were not their own. They had their own children. And he, they, the kids lived with them for months, in some cases for years, he, you know, in a couple of cases, legally adopted kids, but he was someone who in the community, everybody loved, everybody loved because he just had this mindset that you don't let kids struggle. You just don't. And that he understood that some parents just weren't able to do what they needed to, to do for their kids. And so that was his, that was the guiding thing for him and his wife. Like they, police officers are not exactly the most well-paid people in the universe, right? It's an incredibly stressful job. 
and his wife was a, a teacher, but the, you know, the, that's what they did. They just people in and took kids in and made, they asked no questions. And sometimes when the parents could come get them, they came and got them. But in the neighborhood, he was always watching. And so sometimes kids came to him and said, can I just come live with you? And he, he was like, here are the rules. You just got to follow these rules. And then yes. So his, his wife told me, I never know who was going to be at the dinner table on any given day because, you know, he and she would kind of um, jokingly say he would just drag up three, four kids in this house. And, I, and my only question was, are they staying? And then she would just make plans, right? That kind of beauty lives everywhere. And, and, and the, that, the multiplicity of reasons for him, he was a religious man, but he just had this mindset of, you know, you, you preserve the lives of kids. This is what we have to do. Can I ask, by the way, have you done any research or are you aware of any, any good rich research done on how to improve policing in, in America in general? Because it's such a hot topic at the moment for very, very understandable reasons. There are people who want to do whatever they can to reduce them. I mean, you, you yourself in your paper call many of these neighborhoods over-police neighborhoods where the over-policing is one of the problems. But on, on the other hand, as you earlier hinted, there are also, there's the opposite of being under-policed in some ways. I mean, often the same communities are both over-policed and under-policed, depending on whether you look at domestic violence or, or kids hanging out in the corner. <laughs> and so kind of going beyond the, well, should we give more money or less money to the police departments? What's your either either scientific or just kind of community oriented outlook? Like what what should America in particular and the world in general, what can we do to 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 get better policing and better public safety in general, I guess, by whatever means in the future? Um, yeah. Well, I, I think, again, it's just like everything else, it's multi-layered from my my perspective. And so on one level, the answer can't be just giving more money because essentially what we end up doing in a lot of cases is militarizing the police and unleashing a militarized police onto citizens, right? And citizens who themselves want their communities to be safe, right? So in any community where um, safety is an issue, the, the concerns around safety are located with a relatively small number of people. It's not everybody. But the militarization of the police in those areas impacts and identifies everyone as a problem. And that inherently is problematic, right? So everyone gets treated as a criminal when the criminal behavior is only being engaged in by a relatively small number of people. And if you treat people that way, you're going to get a certain set of outcomes that you don't want. Yeah, yeah. Not the least of which is trauma among people. And when you traumatize people early enough where they don't ever feel safe, the, the, the levers that police need to be able to pull in order to make their jobs easier are going to be unbelievably difficult to pull. We will not report certain things because why should they? They can't trust you. And you're no safer than the people who they're scared of, right? So we have to remember that grandmothers are scared of criminals too. Yeah, yeah. Nine-year-olds are scared of criminals. Teenagers are scared of criminals. They don't want to be seen as them and you're treating them such. So militarizing police is not the answer. One of the things that I think is, going, is, is always important is recognizing that in any police context, there are police officers who do a beautiful job. They are thoughtful. They are compassionate. They recognize the humanity of people for whom they, with whom they have to interact as a part of their, their roles. 
And so lifting up those individuals as exemplars to sort of think about what is the perspective that these people, these police officers bring to their job? How is it that they are able to build relationships? And that's one of the things that's true of really good police officers. They are relational. Right? They genuinely build relationships with the people who they serve and they recognize that their job is just a job of service. Not a, and, and so they do power differently because they are, they, are, they are in relationship. Like you don't exercise power in brutal ways if you're in a, in a healthy relationship with your wife or your children, right? You don't, you should not do that in a context with people who you're, you're engaged to serve. And the other thing that I would think I would want to make sure that we do is every, pol there's got, I guess these are two things. One, we have to be more thoughtful about who we allow into police service. Just because somebody wants to do a job does not mean that they should be allowed to do that job. Just because they pass the sort of basic exams does not mean that they are psychologically or relationally ready or positioned to be doing that work. So we've got to be more thoughtful about what disqualifies you in terms of your, your psychic capacities um, from doing this job. We know that people who are um, men in particular who have hyper-masculinist perspectives tend to be more brutal in their work as officers, right? They shouldn't be allowed to do that work. And when, when, they're, when you see the, the, the initial problems, there've got to be mechanisms within the police departments that people work in to say, you need remediation. We need to make sure that you get that remediation and we're going to monitor you to make sure that you're not a danger to the people you're serving, right? That's, so that's another piece is a better set of strategies for determining who is ready to police because it's such an important job. And then the final thing is, Police officers need to know the history of policing, right? So a part of their training has got to be understanding the ways in which their, their work has been weaponized in certain communities and ways in which communities have had to respond to the weaponization of police departments historically. And then a sort of mapping up here are the ways in which that history of weaponizing of our, our discipline plays out in everyday and these are the things I need us to watch out for. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this really is a, a, a case where knowing the history is necessary in order not to repeat it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's one of the sad things about the kind of uh, trend that I've understood of being partially responsible for some of the over-policing in, in America is the idea of predictive crime prevention, which sounds so great because predictive medicine is amazing. But then the problem is that when you do predictive crime prevention, it, it becomes this, well, anybody here might be the criminal. And, and, and so you do because so many people, I mean, I, I remember when I, when I, for example, read Tana Hasi Coates' Between the World and Me, a beautiful book. And, and of course, as anyone can guess, who knows Tana Hasi, it's, it's not a a celebration of the police force in America. But he says, if I remember, and now I really, really hope that I'm not misrepresenting him because I'm just quoting from memory, but I do remember him saying something when he talks about his youth of when he was walking to schools and it was dangerous, that he would have wanted there to be, I'm not sure if he said I would have wanted there to be police officers, but he kind of hinted at that, of course I would have wanted there to be this like safe people, maybe in uniform, taking care of the animals so I can go to school more safely. But I don't want someone to come to me and put me by the wall because I'm, they're trying to prevent crime before it even happens. Absolutely, yeah. And all of us want that, right? I'll give you a really quick example of, of the ways that, that this can show up. When my mom was sick, my, there was someone who was helping us take care of my mom for a few hours a day and she 
house and she accidentally left the front door open. So the breeze and um, blew the, the the front door open. And I live in, I have the privilege of living in a community that is a, a highly resourced community. Where in that, you know, 10 square block historical community, the police are really thoughtful. And they're because of the sort of classing of the space, right? So front doors open, um, police officer drives by, sees the front door open, comes back down the block, sees the front door still open. And so he calls for um, his partner to back him up. So two police cars are outside the door. And um, in the in the ma- meantime, my sister and I get home from work and we go through the back door. We don't, we didn't see that the front door was open. And so it, at some point we heard footsteps coming up the stairs and we realized nobody else should be in the house. We're with my mom. And so we see these police officers and it's scary because my, my reaction whenever I see a police officer is I don't want to be harmed, right? It's, it's, it's fear. And Nick, the police officer, who I didn't know his name at the time, said, are you guys okay? That's how he entered the relationship. He said, are you guys okay? And we said, yeah, like, but how, how did you get in? Like, what, how, why are you here? And he said, I saw your front door open and I got worried. And so I called for backup. Did you guys know that your front door was open? We said, no. And he said, okay, so I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to ask my partners to check the rest of the house to make sure that no one got in. And they did. And then they came back and he said, well, what's going on? Because he noticed that my mom was really sick. And we told him, and he said, my mom died of cancer too. I'm going to stop by here like periodically. You don't have to talk to me, but I'll just check to make sure you guys are okay. That is what I want. Yeah. 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 Right. It's police officers who lead with the, are you guys okay? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for that, um, Com- on my part, completely unplanned diversion <laughs> from our major theme, but just such an important, such an important theme. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Um, I, I don't want to spend time only recounting some of the some of the examples of altruism in 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 the midst of hardship, but there is one story I did want to still talk about which is the story of Sanika yeah am I pronouncing her name correct yeah would you like to quickly talk about that because that really stuck with me when I when I heard you talk about her yeah so Sanika is a young woman who I met different uh, a, a more recent study that I did a couple of years ago where my intention was to examine the lived experience of people who deal, dealt with homelessness but this is a young girl who when she was 16 her mom left her with her five younger siblings. The youngest home was, I believe, about a year, a little bit over a year old. Um, and her mom just took off, just left her. And so she stayed in the house. They didn't know that their mom wasn't coming back. She stayed in the house. And after a month, the landlord kicked them out, right? So she basically became, at 16, the mom of five younger children. They had nowhere to go, so they ended up um, moving into a tent city. These are homeless people who live in tents in a community, and they took them in. And Sanika, um, she she stayed in her high school, and the the kids who were in school, she took them to school because she didn't want anyone to know that anything had changed. Like she didn't want anyone to know her mom didn't come back, and that she was caring because they would have taken her, her siblings. So she walked several miles to get to school every day. She from the tent, right? And the the, the adults who are in the tent in the tent city, whenever they were able to beg for enough money or get food, they fed those kids first, right? They made sure that 
they, you know, brought bottles of water home so that the kids could wash up. And the, they, the kids didn't have, um, you know, enough clothing to wear. But um, Sonika, because she was 16, was old enough that she could wear some of the clothes of the some of the adults around. So somebody would lend her a sweater, but she didn't care about what she was wearing. But anyway, the, the, the adults took care of them. They fed them. They made sure that they went to school. They made sure that they were, they behaved. And the adult males in the community, even those who were struggling with addiction, she talks about the fact that whenever she and the kids were walking by, some of the older men would tell other men who were cussing or fighting or using drugs, put away the drugs. You see the little girl over there, right? So, so they were cared for for years by the by folks in the tent city, and people would hide them because if the police came through, you can't explain having a, a, a you know nine a, a nineteen month old or a five year old when you're a sixty year old woman, right? So the adults would hide them um, in in different tents, and then you know they would they always knew where everybody was. So anyway, Seneca. Well, she wanted to go to college. No one in her family had ever gone to college, but she that was her, her the thing that she wanted to do. She ended up being valedictorian of her high school in terms of grades. She wasn't she was made salutatorian of the school because she was late so often, but she was late because she had to walk and she had to drop her siblings off at school. And, you know, she she couldn't always predict the timing. But so in order to apply to college in the United States, you have to pay the application fee. And the men and women in the tent city raise money. That's what they like. They put together money to pay for the application fees. And she got into school. She unfortunately wasn't able to go because the school that she wanted to go to and that she got into in order to go, she had to fly. She had never been on a plane before. And neither had anybody who was in the tent city. Like, you know, it's not you flying is not what most people do. So they put together enough money to get her a plane ticket. But she thought that you so she knew how much a plane ticket cost, but she thought you could just go like a bus station and go and buy a ticket and that, that the ticket would be the cost that she had seen online. And she was unfortunately um, in a, a nasty way turned back on the counter when she got to the airport. And she, it was so dehumanizing and so um, demeaning that it broke her spirit and she never, she never went. She never went to college. And she couldn't tell her her high school advisor, because there's some things that advisors are going to need parents to be involved in, and she didn't have a parent. So there's some things she couldn't say. Right? But anyway, she ends up doing work um, because of the, the beautiful, um, loving behavior of, there was a man in the community um, that uh, ran a, a social service center for people who are in the tent city. And so he would pull her aside and say, come sit here and help me with this thing. And it was his way of keeping her off the streets, right? And he yeah. knew her circumstances, and he never told the police. And she has a flat now. Or oh, she rents. Uh, was it right? Yeah. Yep. So she works now with the, the center because he hired her. He mentors her. And so she does this really beautiful work with people in the community, in the same community. And the same woman, the primary woman who took care of her, who became her tent mom, um, she now, that mom now lives with her in her flat. And she now has a, a renewed relationship with her biological mom, who after about three months came back. Um, and they were able to reconnect through a variety of, of means. But the, the reconstitution of their family, she never went back to live with her mother because her mom had a boyfriend and didn't want a teenager. But the younger kids um, were able to go with the mother um, because Seneca was able to take care of them for, for the long haul. 
Um, but, you know, she now has a relationship with her mom and it's a beautiful, forgiving, really a complicated relationship. I call it. Yeah, it it probably is if you've been abandoned at that age yeah. by your mom. But it is difficult to forgive that person at the airport. Yeah, um, it is. It is. It is really. Yeah. And it's one of those things that reminds you, you've got to be thoughtful about how you interact with people at every moment. You don't know how the thing you say can break someone's spirit or can make someone's spirit, right? So number one, just resisting being unkind could have led to a, a, a really different outcome. So just to say, sweetie, um, unfortunately, the way that tickets for air is you have to buy the ticket well in advance. I can do that for you now, but it means that you'll have to come in two weeks or three weeks to get the best fare. That would have done it, right? Instead of, you know, you people always think that, that you should be treated specially, and she had never asked to be treated specially. And it, yeah, you know, yeah. it will break. And, and a kid, right? Yeah. You know when you're looking at a kid. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I hope she's doing great. She's doing great. She's <laughs> doing great. She has made a life. She, she has done more with her life than I think a lot of people have in terms of the ways that she touches other people. And the intentionality with which she does the work that she does to care for others. I mean, she is doing amazing work. Can I ask, have you ever encountered Rebecca Solonit personally or, or explored or read her work at all? Because she has written, I think the name of her book is Heavens in Hell, I think. Hmm. And it's about a similar theme, but it's more, it's more about catastrophes and less about systemic oppression. Okay. But I, I, I have, I've read a few chapters from the book. I haven't read the whole book, but it was, uh, she writes beautifully and I'm sure I think you would enjoy. I'll check that out. And uh, let me just see if I find Rebecca Solnit. Have... Oh, Paradise Built in Hell. Sorry. Okay, Paradise Built in Hell. Solnit, yeah. And um, she's done work, especially on Hurricane Katrina. And how a lot of the reporting around it was about how it disintegrates into this the dog eats dog kind of homo homini lupus Hobbesian anarchy. Yeah. And how in reality, yes, in a very few instances there were violence in a lot of the cases. It was due to some some systemic problem or some error. And most of the time what, what Hurricane Katrina led into was just this outburst of sharing solidarity and just, yeah, people surviving because they took care of each other. And then she goes through a lot of other examples of catastrophes and how this is the general trend. Um, there's also a, a, a book, Humankind by Rutger Bregman came out a couple of years later recently. And, and in the very opening, in the kind of introduction to the book, he tells a story of the of the Blitz uh, in London, the, the bombing of London in the Second World War, and how apparently it was a major war strategy by, by, by the German war machine was to break the spirit of London from the inside. And by bombing, the, the which was the first systematic civilian bombing in, in history, um, that, that they will break London because they will turn Londoners against each other. <laughs> And how that was the opposite of what happened, and they and and ironically, then the British government does the exact same mistake, bombing Dresden with 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 explicitly the principle of 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 breaking the the German spirit. And again, it turns it's it's the one thing that you don't you don't want to do, because people turn to each other and they stick together. Um, yeah, the, the the um, there's a theory called the altru called altruism born of suffering. Hmm. 
that I I really really love in part and some of the newer work that um, I'm doing um, some of my former doc students are doing um, re- sort of resonates around that theory that for many many people the experience of suffering catalyzes a real commitment to loving other people more deeply right sacrificing for others and 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 reaching out to others and noticing others. So yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. So how do we think about the tension between, on the one hand, not assuming that being in an unprivileged position of, you know, whatever is pushing you down, you know, racism, um, classism, inequality, gotten your roof thrown by a, by a hurricane. None of these things are things we wish for people. Now, in one sense, of course, it's it's good news that these don't always break the spirit, but they can uplift the spirit, and they might even more often uplift the spirit in in some ways. Then, but then on the other hand, it also seems that you know, if what what do I want for my child? I mean, I wouldn't want them to become just a selfish person who only seeks for their own comfort. But I also wouldn't want to <laughs> have them have to live in poverty or have to live in a hurricane or whatever for for that. So, how do you think about the kind of tension between on the one hand we see hardship can lead into i guess what we could call pro-social growth but on the other hand i i'm sure that it's also possible to 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 live in a comfortable lifestyle and then become a very uh, pro-social altruistic people you see that all the time so is it i guess one re- to make this more specific the question because <laughs> i'm just going around circles I don't know. do you think do you think that person who is born in who lives through hardship is more likely to be pro-socially orientated or do you think that they are more likely to be in some pro-socially oriented in another way like does it have a different flavor to it than those coming from privilege or is it something else yeah that makes the difference something else hmm. because every human being will experience hardship in some way hmm. It's the leveling experience. It's one of the universals, right? Hmm. All going to lose people. So even if even if you don't suffer material hardship, hmm. which certainly in the context of wealth, people generally don't, um, depending on the level of wealth that they have. Everyone is going to watch someone die. Everyone is going to experience sickness for themselves or people that they love. Hardship is universal. And the, the the magnitude of it and our capacity to navigate hardship is different, um, but but hardship cuts across all of us. I think the thing that is um, that makes us pro-social is how we make meaning of the hardships and the non-hardships that we experience, right? So for, I don't think there's anything magical about poverty that makes poor people kind, and I don't think there's anything inherent in wealth that makes people unkind, right? Or make make Kindness lives everywhere. So I think there's a meaning making. If we can, if we make sense of the experiences that we have in a way that makes us grateful and makes us attend to not only our own experiences, but see other people, right? And be able to compassionately say, well, I I look at, I I can look around me and see that someone is suffering, right? So I think one of the things, one of the, death knells to prosociality is inattention. If you're never looking at other people, and if you're if you're just not paying attention, you're never going to see that somebody needs you. Right? So that's number one. If you make the way that you narrate your situation 
reinforces narcissism in whatever way that might look, whether you're poor or middle class or wealthy. If it's all about you, you're never going to extend yourself because prosociality requires you to attend to the other. Right. So that, that meaning making, that capacity to attend, the gratitude for what you have, but the, the kind of gratitude that says, I didn't deserve what I have what, or what's happening to me, good or bad. And, you know, neither does anybody else. At the end of the day, we've got to take care of each other. If that's the way we make meaning of our relational space, then we're much more likely to extend a hand. And if we are convinced that I may not actually know how to help you, but what, what I know that I'm going to do is try. And I know that I'm going to need help at some points. And I may not be helping you because I need your help at some other point, but I know I'm going to need help. And I want to live in a world where we reinforce the idea that people help each other. So if, if we do that kind of meaning making, we do that kind of attentive work, I think no matter what our class circumstance, we end up with people who are, are much more likely to be compassionate. And if we reinforce the idea that everybody deserves help, everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the tensions that is somehow related to, to this theme is the issue of reading through your work, clearly there's been a misrepresentation of poverty, of what in America is known as inner city life, where it's overly bleak and this assumption that people become over self-interested. But at the same time, it's also clear that there are real problems, yeah. problems that are often titled antisocial behavior. You know, that the streets feel safer at, at some areas than others, and typically it goes with wealth yeah. or, or with other you know, similar metrics. At what point does it become a problem of 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 some say where you're painting a too rosy picture of what it's like to live in poverty? I mean, luckily, I'm talking with a person who knows. You know, I mean, you say you were upper broke, <laughs> but you know, you've you've been deeply invested in these communities, so you're not just speaking from, um, you know, as 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 an outsider. And so I'm I'm very I really want to ask this particularly from you is like at what point if I'm talking about this with as a, as a relatively privileged person, you know, I'm talking with my friends, you know, you know, like actually people they do great things even in the in poverty, et cetera, at what, at what point are they allowed to tell, tell me, hey, look, you're painting a too rosy picture, like people really do suffer. And for many kids that suffering, that poverty, et cetera, leads them to become a gang member. We have to understand that a lot of criminal behavior stems from these conditions. And therefore we have to blame the conditions and address the conditions. Interestingly, actually, uh, one of the, the two names that came up when I was reading your background to the research were uh, Philip Zimbardo and Stanley Milgram were both proponents of this kind of, you know, the inner city leads into, into lack of pro-sociality. Well, they both knew what they were talking about. They were both from Bronx. Mm -hmm. And uh, and although we might categorize them as white today, I mean, the other one was an Italian immigrant family. The other one was Jewish, which, you know, in the 30s, 40s, what are necessarily what we think of as the, the privileged ethnic groups in, in Bronx. So they know kind of where they're coming from, and they saw that there is something that psychology needs to address in this way in which certain kind of difficult environments give rise to antisocial behavior or lack of pro-social behavior. So, so I, I, I'm really convinced that goodness, kindness, it doesn't die in struggle. But, but where, what does suffer in, in those areas, in a sense? What, where is it still a case that we have to like, let's fix these areas because it takes something from the human spirit? Yeah, I will never, ever, and I do not, not ever want to be an apologist for poverty. Hmm. Poverty is terrible. It is absolutely terrible. 
No one should have to live in poverty. It is a terrible condition to live in. The people are not terrible, right? So, and I think it's that distinction, right? Conditions should never be allowed to exist. It is, it is absolutely true that when you, when you cannot feed yourself, certainly not everyone, but a lot of people will make hard decisions to do things that they would never do under other circumstances, that, it, that those decisions are designed to try to figure out how am I going to survive and how do I help my family survive? And sometimes that does lead to be people engaging in behaviors that are criminal behaviors. Sometimes it does lead to violence. And then there's structural violence, right? Stuff that is imposed on people because they are poor or to force poverty or to create poverty. And so the structural dynamics also should be and should primarily be, be um, terminated. But poverty is terrible. What I think the thing that I, I am really in, um, intentional about is recognizing that poverty is created by structures. I, very often, not all the time, but, but very often poverty is created by structures, by policies that lock people off from opportunities, sometimes because, of, because people are Jewish or Italian or poor white or black or whatever it might be. But there are policies and practices and systems that, we, that are in place that if we dismantled and transformed them would transform the condition of poverty. We absolutely have a responsibility to do that. It is that's what it means to be human. And ethically, it should be something that we do because it does lead to terrible um, experiences for people. <laughs> but I, if, no, but I, I think for me, distinguishing between the condition and the people is important, but also recognizing that the same dynamics that we see coming out of poverty also exist in the context of wealth. We just call them different things, right? You, street gangs exist in, um, in poor areas because they are allowed to flourish because of the way systems function. But that kind of gang mentality also exists in the context of wealth. So the same dynamics of people coming together to mobilize power for their own benefit and using really violent mechanisms to maintain their power happens in the context of wealth. Yeah. Just privatized and, and um, sometimes elevated yeah. in ways that we either it's not visible on the streets, but it's certainly visible in, in the context of, of how people's lives are affected. No, it's a fantastic point because I think that one of the issues is that what would be called, what, what would manifest itself as antisocial behavior in a poor context might just look like selfishness in a middle class context. Absolutely. And it's, it's a much milder claim in a way. <laughs> you don't end up in jail because you're selfish. Yes. And, and in many cases, the, when wealthy people engage in the same behaviors, the impact is way more devastating, right? For people, like the decision to, to do certain things because you're wealthy could mean that entire neighborhoods lose their homes, right? And, and any generational wealth that was acquired over five, six generations among certain groups of people get lost forever. And no one cares because it looks like just your private greed, but nobody's paying attention to the fact that thousands of people lost any hope of being able to move forward because of your choices. It's still stealing. It's still antisocial. It's just with a wealthy person at the front. But crime in a is no different from crime in, in hoodies. Right. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a, that's a very, I think, insightful answer, and I'm certainly going to think about it uh, for a long time to come. I wanted to ask one other 
question of about a place where there might be some tension, which is the question of how different is the experience, uh, the emotional life of people in very different circumstances. And I and the way I, I I would like to frame this is that I think there's kind of two ways in which people often react against some kind of let's say a, a racist discourse around uh, around those people um you know whatever is it black or brown or 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 more nuanced distinctions <laughs> we're talking you know italian americans versus versus you know english americans at some point and one of them is to say that no 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 um those people are actually they're not that different from you you know, they also, they want to be safe, they want to have food, they want to succeed, and they are kind, just like your kids are able to be kind, they are able to be kind. And that's kind of the theme that we've talked about. But there is another strand of responses, which is the kind of like, well, yeah, they're different from you, and what's the problem? Like, why why should everybody be like you? And I, I recently, for example, Batya Mesquita is a, is a sci- psychologist who recently published a book called Between Us, about how culture shapes emotions and Part of the argument, I think, is, is very understandable. I mean, the kind of expectations that culture puts on us shape the way that an emotion feels like, I think, is one way to say it. So, so let's say, I think an easy way to think about it is just within one culture, if, you, if you're in a heterosexual love affair in a, in a heteronormative community, it feels different than if you're in a homosexual love affair where you have emotions of secrecy, shame, whatever, kind of tying into that feeling of love, perhaps. And so I think that part of that I was able to follow very, very quickly. But but at some point I did start feeling a little bit, I don't know, uncomfortable, if that's the right word. But at one, for example, in one interview, Mesquita says about, about maternal love, she says, quote, what exists across the world is some inclination to take care of your offspring, but not necessarily what we call love. And actually, in the 19th century, mater- maternal love got into fashion. Before that, it was children's fears that needed to be elicited. You did not have to have love. Maternal love is a very new invention. And then later on, she says, and arguably it only exists in middle-class Western parents, unquote. And that's where I started feeling uncomfortable. And uh, what, what's your take what's, what, on, on taking that path instead of the, hey, we're all the same path? So I think... Number one, I think there's a particular kind of, um, and I, I'll, I'll say this with a, a, a note of caution, there's a particular kind of arrogance that we're taught as social scientists where we presume that we know people who we don't know. And so when I hear this notion of, um, you know, love as in, in a, defined in a certain way only exists in, in middle-class parents, I often want to ask, how many people who aren't middle-class have you ever not only talked with, but really spent time with. And have you asked them and looked with them at what love looks like and the ways in which they do all the things that that are considered loving, right? But that you don't see because you don't have the right to see it because you're not a private sphere. But so much of what we presume exists or doesn't exist is rooted in the arrogance of no one has talked about it, therefore it doesn't exist. Hmm. Or haven't seen it in whatever I've done and so it doesn't exist or um, the literature doesn't have it means the absence of it in the existential um, sense right so I, I'm really cautious about that yeah yeah on her side I have to say that I, I did just get one quote out of the context and and I think and she does make some distinctions on 
you know, how the, the kind of love that is supposedly middle class Western is a love that's focused on admiration of the child. And there's, and I guess that once you make enough many distinctions, it all ends up in a semantic soup that's kind of <laughs> difficult to tease apart. But, but, but I, I think more generally, uh, I did, yeah, I, I, when, when I heard this, I was like, hmm, I want to ask uh, what, 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 uh, what Jacqueline Mattis thinks about this, <laughs> because you, you talked a lot about love across, and, and I think that in a way you're trying to build the opposite kind of bridges, which is like, no, look, like you might think that this whatever kindness, goodness, love exists only in the sphere, but, but look, I mean, it's, it's obvious, maybe the ways of performing it are different, but it, it's there. Yeah. In terms of the question of, the universal versus the the cultural and the different, right? Mm. Um, I think I lean into a both end, right? I think there is value in trying to understand what ties us all together, what cuts across all of us. Um, and then being able to say, I don't want to live in a world where everybody's like me. That is not only a, a bizarrely weird, that's a weird world, right? Where everyone has to be like you, that, that is, that's odd. Because the things that make us, the, the things that I know attract me to people are things where I can see some commonalities, but I can see some differences, right? So my male friends are friends that we have, we have very similar values, but we don't live them out the same way, right? Or we have different takes on things, sometimes radically different. My family is bizarrely heterogeneous, right? Different religions, different cultures, different races. And I love them because we don't look alike. But we know genetically that it's not actually a good thing for, for every, any, every organism in a system to be the same. You die out quickly. If everybody thinks the same, <laughs> you, you, you're all going to make the same mistakes. So, it, so it, being able to, to talk with people about the reality that, yeah, there are some things that is, are, are true for all of us. Like we will all, we're all born and we'll all die. We all care for people, whether we call it love or something else. We all care emotionally for people in one way or another. Every human being who is healthy has friendships. What those look like is going to be different. But we also should aspire to say, and so how are you different from me? And to be able to that with all of the complexities that come with that um, across groups and across individuals. So I'd, I'd, I'd lean into the both and around that. Um, the question that you asked made me think of, again, some work. My friend Christy and I have been um, doing. Christy's a professor at Tufts University, and we we met when we were at NYU together and started doing work. But one of the areas of work that we do um, centers on um, parenting strengths among African Americans. Christy is not African American; she's white. And so, one of the things that we we looked at in trying to understand why the literature around African American parenting, especially low income African American parenting, is so steeped in this narrative of they're doing it. Right. And one of the things that we did was we asked parents, tell us what you do that helps you. First of all, tell us what the kind of child you want to produce. Right. Like you met, when you had a child, what is shaping the way that you're raising your kid? And parents were like, well, you know, yeah, they're, they're going to learn the alphabet. Like that's not I'm not worried about them learning the alphabet. I'm learning. I'm worried about them being good people. I'm worried about like them being people that I can like and that other people will like. So what matters most for me is making sure that I have a kid who is kind. So I, some parents don't worry so much about, do you know how to count at the beginning? They all want you to count. But it's like, but did you notice that there's a little boy over there who needs a hug? Go hug him, right? Or one thing that parents talked about a lot is that um, 
when low-income parents, especially Black parents, don't intervene when their children are struggling, it's, all, it's historically been coded as neglectful. And when we talk to parents about like, okay, so we saw that there was this moment where we asked them to do these tasks with their kids and the kid, they would let the kids struggle. And sometimes the kids were in like, seemed like they were in distress. Um, one of the things that they said is, I know my kid, right? He's crying now, but if I let him solve it, he will realize he knows how to solve it. So I don't need to rush in with a hug and I don't need to rush in saying, sweetie, I, I'm here. He knows I'm here. I let him solve it. And at the end of the day, he, the kid solves the problem. He turns around and he smiles and his mom or dad or grandfather says, I knew you could do it. <laughs> Speak, right. So the, the, it's part of the, that issue of similarity versus difference. If what we're looking for is the index of love is you rush in and give a hug and say, honey, I know that how you're feeling, then no, that's not what you're seeing. But if the index of love is I care enough about you to allow you to become the kind of human who can solve problems on their own, you're going to see that. What about religion? I recently had an episode with uh, Philip Kitcher from Columbia University where we talked about secular humanism and religion. And uh, when I posted a, a little post about this on social media, and he's an atheist, but he's very friendly towards religion. He, he's, he's kind of, let's hold hands, <laughs> kind of atheist. Um, and the feedback was mostly very negative in a sense of like, oh, this is like underappreciating how much damage religion has done and is doing and how much social justice is prevented by conservatism that is baked into a religion, especially Christianity and other Abrahamic religions. And I don't think that would be the universal response. I think it's a universal response in some circles of the internet <laughs> philosophy forums. <laughs> but uh, but what would you say to people who are raised in, in a secular environment and who really fail to see any, or like who struggle to see really anything worthwhile in re religion as a social institution so personal faith aside yeah what 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 should i what should i say them when they uh, <laughs> when they come back to me next it is an it's an interesting conversation to have um i am a religious person um and i think the thing that i have been trying to do and i i, I uh, try to emulate my mom in so many different ways that i didn't realize i was trying to emulate my mom but <laughs> things that um i remember growing up is that sober reality and, and realization that, yes, it is true. Religion has been used for terrible things. It has also been used for profoundly beautiful things, right? It's, it's a both and because religion ultimately is a cultural system. And like any other cultural system, first of all, is populated by human beings who will use the, the ideologies and the symbols and the perspectives to achieve things that they want to achieve either because the religion reinforces it. And so some people take from religion the idea that you love simply because everything is sacred simply because, and you don't get to harm anything. In fact, you have a responsibility to care. And so how religions get used is about the meanings that people construct out of them and the ends that they want to achieve, right? So, um, and that's true for anything. It's true for philosophy, like any, any secular philosophy will, is, is, you can use um, in the same ways. So I, I am very appreciative of 
certainly the reality that religion has been used for harmful ends by people who wanted to find a tool that would justify the harmful ends because it served them. And it is still being used that way. I see um, conservatives who will justify putting migrants on planes and sending them to places where they are cold, they're hungry, and they're going to be in harm's way because it serves a political end. And they show up in church or a mosque or a temple and they smile and other people who call themselves religious smile and laugh and look what we did, right? And that's evil. It is evil and it's evil carried out by people who profess to be religious. It is not new. But by the same token, there are people who are also in those mosques and temples and, and churches um, and who don't even belong to a religious institution, um, you know, who will say, we're going to set up a feeding center in this Gurdwara because what it means to be Sikh is that we take care of other people and people should not go hungry. So I don't care what we're doing. This is what we stop to do. So religion get, gets used because of the way that people, the people who are exposed to the ideologies are encouraged to make meaning of it. Um, one interesting thing that is true for African-American, for, for churches around issues of race, Black churches in the United States, minister, black, black ministers in Black churches are disproportionately likely to read religious texts through the standpoint of social justice. So if you're a Black person or a white person or whoever you are in a Black church, almost every sermon is going to be a social justice sermon, one way or another, because it's the sort of cultural norm for how to read the text. That is less likely to happen in conservative white churches, right? Justice is not, is not the way that the text is read. And so you're going to have communities who have a different way of relating even to the very text that is a foundation for religion. Those kinds of differences exist all across the world. Yeah. And I often think that um, the kind of criticism that I, I, I alluded to, it's often somewhat naive to the diversity within re religious communities, even like what you alluded to. But also, it's somewhat naive in regards to the assumption that without religion, there wouldn't be these problems. I mean, I, I've lived uh, in China for one and a half years, and, and you, it's very difficult to find a more secularized, non-religious place as, as post-communist mainland China. And it's not like suddenly they don't have any cultural issues around homosexuality. <laughs> And as you alluded, the, the the role of religion, of course, from a black perspective, is it wasn't like every church was suddenly preaching abolitionism, but in in abolitionist circles, it was very much first from the Quakers, and then, well, is it called the Second Great Awakening? Or um, so it has played a it has played a huge role. And then, of course, Martin Luther King famously was 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 a minister, and uh, so I I think the personal faith and and nuanced debates aside, I think it is surprising when people just assume that this must be against social justice, period. Uh, it doesn't kind of stand true on either side of the issue. You know? No. And it, we have this re really wonderful opportunity, even within the context of religion, because like even in, in churches that are, are social justice churches, you have people engaging in socially unjust practices, right? So um, transsexuality is not embraced in most Black churches that talk about social justice, right? Mm -hmm. Neither is um, LGBTQ identities. I mean, that, like, you, you will, but one of the things that I love is in spaces where you have people who are in, intentional about saying, my job is to continually interrogate myself, right? If I say that I am loving, if I say I am the child of a loving God, 
why are there limits to that love? And where am I enacting limits to that love, right? And um, so do I have the right to say, I'll love you as long as your sexual practices are with other people who are, <laughs> like, what's, what's rational about that? Yeah. The, if what we're talking about is the capacity of people to love each other, again, what, why does it matter who they love, right? If, if, the, if, the, if, if the ideology is used to continually for an, a continual self-interrogation and community interrogation where we say, isn't it hypocritical that we will love people under these conditions, but not under these conditions, but at the same time, we say that the thing that makes our religion unique and makes God unique is unconditional love, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one uh, interesting uh, counter would be that, well, okay, okay, fair and square, there's no inherent problem, you know, I guess you can do things right in a religious context, but at the same time, like you can do things right in a non-religious context, then we know how how easily religious divides end up being, well, you know, divides instead of bridges, so why not just do it in a secular context? And I'm wondering if uh, we could just before we end, go through some of the kinds of, I mean, not to make an argument for, oh, you know, religion isn't necessarily better, but to try to see some of the perhaps unique vocabulary that emerges often in a religious context more strongly than in a non-religious context and see if, if, it, uh, if it brings us some, some insight. Um, one of the words that I really always am struck by, in, especially in English language discourse around Christian faith, is the word grace. And I really don't think we have a great word in Finnish for it. Um, and I'm always struck by just how how much it resonates with me without me having no... I really have no idea what it even means. <laughs> I'm like, I can't even translate this word. So um, what is grace? You know, it is, it's one of the things that keeps me deeply and profoundly linked to my own faith, right? So grace is the not only the notion, but the lived experience of recognizing that you are the beneficiary of unearned love and favor, right? That there are things that not only did you not have to work for, but that you have, but you will never have to work for them. And one of them is love. Another is forgiveness, right? Um, another is compassion. Another is dignity. So that, that So grace for me is... I will treat you with respect and dignity. If you fall, I will be there to figure out how to help you stand up. Not because you have done something to, to make it worthwhile for me to do that. Not because you have worked for it, but simply because you exist. You don't have to work for it. And that is for me one of the most beautiful things about the faith that I happen to have been born into and cultivated in. And I think, I don't know that, you know, I'm not a, a um, a scholar of religion in the sense that I know like the tenets of Islam or the tenets of Islam, et cetera. But it is the thing in Christianity that I love the most. The idea that all of us are beneficiaries of divine grace. Right? We are loved, we are cared for, we are provided for simply because we exist. And you don't have to be wealthy to get it. But it means that um, there's something um, relieving about knowing that I'm enough and that any nine-year-old is enough and that the person struggling with addiction is enough whether they realize it or not. 
that they are fully enough simply because they are and they deserve to be loved just because. And you can mess up and you still deserve it, right? Like you still are, you're still going to get it because you have done the deserving, but because just because. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful concept to me. I think it, what, what makes it so special is ethics and especially morality is quite a cold word and the kind of bridging between the moral, the cold morality with the, the, the more warm and vibrant you know, beauty or uh, some of these kind of states. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But, but I, I, I love that you leaned into grace, like grace and miracles, things that for me, um, I, I, I love the concept of miracles, things that you can't explain that, um, you know, just sort of show up and that cause all, right? Like a sense of my God, like we're in a world that is just fantastic. And, and I, I see miracles and I, in, in small things, right? Like I quote as miracles, things that probably other people would be like, that's just biology. <laughs> so like, I remember the first time my, my nephew, my, my oldest nephew, um, I got to meet him two days after he was born. Hmm. I was holding him and he opened his eyes and he had these thick eyelashes and he just smiled like this gummy smile. And something happened in me like, if you touch this child, <laughs> <laughs> If you do anything to this child, it's you and me. Like, like I and I am pacifist, but I'm like you. And my when my second nephew was born, when my nieces were born, with my my best friend um, Christy, who I, I mentioned to you before, Christy McQueen, her I have the same experience with her two daughters. Right, they're they look nothing like me. Hmm. And I think maybe the problem is the word "just" in the, it's just biology. That in a, a lot of the secularized language we have loves the word "just." Like uh, people say, "Oh, it's just you know, it's just atoms and void." Is the kind of <laughs> original Greek position. Why is it just? I mean, I mean, I don't. There's other metaphysical issues around atoms and void as they understood it. But but just focusing. Okay, maybe it is just atoms and void. Um, maybe it's not, but maybe it is. But if it is, then what? Well, yeah. Why do we love to put the word just? It's just biology. Just. I mean, have you ever studied any biology? It's miraculous. <laughs> love that point. Yeah. Mm. Wait, just a con- I'm using just again. Think about the concept of friendship. Like I'm I'm blown away by the the fact that friendship is a thing. Like hmm. yeah. the experience exists. That there's a human you've never encountered before and you sit down or you pass them and there's something about some of them that makes you stop and listen and have this sense of connection. And you can, you can explain it by, you know, all, in all sorts of relational theory, mm-hmm. like similarities, et cetera. There are lots of people who are similar, who are similar to you, who you would never develop a friendship with. So there's something about lived experience and our capacity to develop love for people who we did not, who we were not born to, that we will sacrifice everything for them. You know, but they, they, I think there are just some things that that are part of the lived experience that I that inspire awe in me, and altruism is one of them. Yeah, and I think awe is such a is such a great word about it because it it's an attitude taken towards something where it's the attitude doesn't change the fact, but it changes the relationship between kind of us and what we are beholding. Absolutely, absolutely. 
I, I am, I'm blown away that we get to be human and we get to live and we get to experience the amazingness of what it means to be here and be here together, which I think is the other thing about religion that is, um, the idea that ideas that get some ideas can get passed down and can be so moving that it leads people to sit, to practice certain behaviors, but also to, to care for others in certain kinds of ways. And, um, and when those are, are good, you know, they, and, and they're used for the, for the caring of others, it can be really profound. Like I probably forgive if I didn't have religion. And I think that's historically backed. It's often, I think, in a religious context that the most incredible acts of forgiveness have yeah. have, have taken place, especially thinking about the black experience. I would assume that it's just... And, and often to a level where some people might say, this is too much. Like, please, no, not again. <laughs> Why do we have to always forgive? Right. But oh, so often, so many have. And um, I think it's made the world a better place. It's a shame they had to be in that place. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, but, you know, the... Our crisis points very often are, are points that of reflection. So I don't, I don't, I, w I don't wish harm or precarity on any of us. Hmm. Um, but they are really profoundly dramatic landscapes against which to make meaning. Yeah, yeah I, I do think our society would would in general benefit from a little bit less sharp edges around the around our morality because yeah, we can feel the <laughs> sharpness. I think uh, almost daily nowadays. Yeah. It's true. So maybe um, I personally, I'm, I'm, I'm quite tightly practicing my life in, in a, in a secularized way. So maybe what I, I need to try to uh, take home from this is a bit more unconditionality and a little bit more forgiveness and a little bit more awe. Yeah, well, well, it, the the cool thing is we're all in the practice, all all in the process of being made, as one of my colleagues once said. To me. We and we get to make. This is not true in a total sense, but we certainly have a lot of choice about how we make ourselves, right, every day. So um, I'm, I'm with you. I'm trying to become more forgiving every day, trying to become more loving. So we get to do it together. Um, I did have that one final question that I, I, I told you I might ask. Yeah. Um, so before I I'll let you go, all the work that you've done, how has it sh shaped your view of 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 us of humanity it's yeah, a great question i think um probably the most profound effect that the work has had on me is it's made me look at unmissable thing right it's um when we talk about human kindness um one of the things that strikes me is how much of the everyday kindnesses that people engage in that we just don't see, hmm. right? We, we're looking for either the dramatic, mm. for the running in front of the bus, right? As the, the signal of like, here's a sacrifice made, here's an act of altruism, but we don't pay attention to the hand on the shoulder, right? The stopping and asking, really, are you okay? Um, or, you know, the person who says, you know, I don't have any money, but I have a credit card. Can I get you something to eat? Right. So there are millions and millions of small acts of goodness that happen every day, and we miss millions and millions of them um, because of a variety of reasons. So the missability of things has struck me, and I think I'm trying to become more 
attentive to the small, easily missed acts of goodness. So there are ways in which um, I, I'm getting to be more appreciative of all of us because of the small things, the things said, the things done, the choices made um, that would be easy to miss otherwise. But that's how it's changed. I love human beings more. Dr. Jacqueline Mattis, thank you very, very much. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm going to wish you the best of luck. I wish you grace. And thank you for listening this episode until the very end. I really enjoy recording, editing, and, and doing all the work that goes into these episodes. I, I hope that you enjoy the product. If you do, then I would really appreciate a helping hand. Um, it can be something as simple as giving a nice review on your podcast app, sharing it with a friend, or if you haven't done so, just subscribing. That really helps immensely at this early stage of building the show. Whatever you decide to do, I hope that you decide to tune in the next time. Until then, take care.